My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and it's my joy to lead us as we look at our last message in our short Advent series. And we've talked about an unparalleled king. We've talked about an unshakable kingdom. Today we're going to talk about an unseen hope in Hebrews chapter 11. I think we can all agree that the number 2020 has quickly become associated with the numbers 13 and 666. Can we, can we group those all together? 2020, they're going to stop making 20th floors on hotels now. They're going to just jump straight from 19 to 21. So no 13 and no 20. Did 2020 let you down? Yeah, some of you in a pretty big way. I keep seeing memes about how 2020 is almost over. Uh, but I think maybe we haven't considered the possibility that changing the number at the end is probably not going to just undo everything, Right? As if 2021 magically comes and everything's fine. Right? That's not, I think that's how that works. It's not just going to undo everything. But this I know for sure. People have set a really, really low bar for 2021. Right? They're like, well, it can't possibly be as bad as 2020, but wait. But wait, Right? I think a lot of people think, like, if we just make it through without aliens or a zombie apocalypse, we're going to party. This would be a good time for me to tell you that the Pentagon has declassified, like, UFO footage. Have you seen that? So, hold on to your hats. 2021 might be more exciting than 2020. This is the year we get aliens, maybe. Who knows? But maybe, maybe... That just becomes an indicator for how little actual hope we have, right? That we will sort of downgrade our hope for 2021, that we set a low bar. I don't think that's really hope. I don't think that's how hope works, right? Even if we look at 2021 as an opportunity to somehow redeem what we've endured, aren't we just shortchanging what hope actually is, right? Especially for those of us who claim Christ as Savior, there's, there's no room for downgrading hope if we claim the name of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this in Hebrews chapter 11, the idea of what hope really is. Sometimes going through a whole chapter is tricky because there's so much that you could highlight. You could do a case study on different aspects of faith, how God works differently in the lives of his people according to his same purposes. You could do a sermon just on suffering and the pain God's people endured on the way to the realization of the promise fulfilled. In Hebrews chapter 11, we are given an examination of what hope really looks like and the character of faith that is firmly anchored in an eternal, unseen hope. Now, here's sort of a precursor to this. I can't tell you how to have faith. Scripture makes it clear that faith is a gift of God, right? I can't tell you how to have it. Because you only have it if you have it. It's kind of how it works. If God gives it to you, you have it. And that's so that none of us can brag about our ability to have faith. There's, there's, you can't just be like, I have more faith than other people do because, you know, it's my faith. It comes to you by means of the Holy Spirit, right? It's like why you can't put humble on a resume. It's your best quality. I'm humble. That's not how that works. I can tell you what this hope is, and what it looks like in the lives of people who have had it. Because that is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter 11. 
And so we're going to start with this. So the first thing that we see in chapter 11 is that hope is primarily founded on the existence and promises of God. Hope is primarily founded on the existence and promises of God. Look at verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things unseen. So in essence, faith is unseen hope. And it's hope in something that you can't see, a conviction in something that you can't see. The most important part of faith, however, is that your hope is placed in the right object. Because the amount of faith that you have is not nearly as important as where you're putting your faith. You know, this time of year when the lakes start freezing over, you can walk out on a lake that looks frozen, but what really matters is not how convinced you are that the lake will hold you up. It's whether or not the ice is actually thick enough to you. That's the the same thing with faith. Like, your amount of faith is not nearly as important as what you're putting your faith in. How can we experience true hope in this life? Well, it's very simple. We take God at His word and believe that He will come through with all that He has said He will do for His people, which is the most impossible simple thing to do. That's why faith is a gift, because all it requires is for you to just believe that God's going to do everything He said He's going to do. But you know and I know that that's not as easy as it sounds. But this is how people were commended by God. Verse 2. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. They were commended by this unseen hope. And verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what does this look like? At the beginning, what does hope actually look like? Well, it means you at least acknowledge that God created everything out of nothing. Check. Easy to do, right? But it can't just end there. Like, hope is not just believing something about God. Hope is not believing in the existence of God. Again, you want to talk about setting the bar low? We find it to be a joy when we meet somebody and we go, hey, do you believe there's a God? And they're like, yes. And we're like, ha, how cool is that? Well, a lot of people believe there's a God of some sort. But that's not hope. And that's not faith. In fact, if you were to look through this entire chapter, the formula is always, by faith, somebody did something. It's not just knowing things about God, but having a certainty that nothing done for God is wasted, right? That's, that's what's going on here. We aren't just wasting our time, and in fact, this hope lasts even beyond our own lives. That's what hope is. It's not just about you or me, It's founded on the reality that you're trusting God to fulfill all of his promises. Abel's faith, the author of Hebrews says, still speaks even though it was a very short-lived faith. What was Abel's faith? Well, that he offered to God what was rightfully God's, trusting that that's what God wanted, right? And what was his reward for that? Well, his brother killed him. It's a very short-lived hope. But it still speaks, the author of Hebrews says, that faith still speaks because of what a great God is able to do with very little, right? It didn't take much for Abel. Look at the picture of Noah. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was justified by this hope, right? By this unseen hope, by this faith. And this is actually a picture of what it looks like to be God's people. You want a good encapsulation of what hope in Christ actually looks like? It's being secure in something provided by God, but grasped onto by obedience. God didn't just drop the boat there. He's like, hey, you need a boat because it's going to rain, so make the boat. Noah wasn't like, I believe you exist, God. And then he just hung out, and it rained, and he was like, oh, what am I supposed to do now? No, God said, hey, build an ark. Build this boat. So he did. He grasped onto God's actual promises because he took God at his word and believed that God was going to do something, so then he acted, right? But think about that. Noah was secure in something provided by God, but he grasped onto it by obedience, and in that was covered from God's judgment. He and his family were covered from the judgment of God by taking hold of that unseen hope, by acting upon that. What about Abraham? Well, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. I mean, that's hope. That's unseen hope. He went without knowing where he was supposed to go. God said, hey, it's time to go, and he said, okay, I'll trust you. Real hope in the existence and promises of God will always leave just the intellectual plane because it's way easier to believe something in your mind than it is to have to display your hope in the face of resistance. It's really easy to be like, I believe in God. It's really easy. But a lot of times that's our, our litmus test for whether or not you're saved is do you believe in Jesus Christ, right? And there's a difference between believing in Jesus Christ and believing upon Jesus Christ. Because one is just saying, like, I, I think these things are true. Another one is saying, I'm willing to, to go as far as it takes for me to show this to be my only hope. Does that make sense? Like, you act on it. Now, you don't work for your hope, but your hope produces action. You don't work for hope. Like, you don't earn hope as a result of what you do. So, if God says, hey, follow me, and you follow him, you don't earn that by it. How do we know that? Well, even in this list, the author of Hebrews shows us something that can't be done. Like, we look and say, okay, well, uh, Noah did something. Noah built this boat. Abraham went. But then you get to Sarah, and this is where it gets tricky and shows you that you, you're not actually the one who does it for God, right? Because Sarah gets thrown in, and, and look what hers was. By faith, verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not something you can do in and of yourself, right? Like, if you're barren, you're barren. Outside of God's work, you can't just make yourself fertile. Agreed? Do we, can we all agree on that? So you see, it's not something that you even can do, because Sarah couldn't do that. Her ability to do that was directly dependent on God's promise to her, right? So it's not even about our obedience, but it's about trusting God enough to take him at his word to where even though we weren't able to obey in our, you know, our fleshly abilities, God gives us the power to be obedient and to follow him. So you don't work for your hope, but your hope does produce action. Many people think that they know God, but there's nothing put on the line for it. 
There's just nothing on the line. I mean, it's easy to be like, hey, I believe in God, right? In the day of a catastrophe, or maybe even a year of it, that hope gets exposed for what it is. Shallow ideas that God exists to make us comfortable. You know what I've seen in 2020? I've seen people start off being like, this is going to be a great year. God's going to do amazing things. And by the end of 2020, people are like, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. That's not hope. And that's not faith. And that's not compelling. It's contingent on whether or not you got anything out of the deal. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to show us, right? An actual unseen hope is not about you, like, getting what you want from God. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and, and that he rewards those who seek him. You see it? It's not just believe that he exists. It's that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. See, we, we live in a world in which most people think that they have hope. But when it comes down to it, not many people are actually willing to put anything on the line for their hope. In which case, what we actually mean to say is wish when we talk about hope. I wish this is true. Right? Because hope means you actually put something on the line. It means you actually sacrifice something for that. So we wish God would do something for us right now. So many people will hedge their bets, right? They think they have hope in God by an intellectual assent. So they'll hedge their bets with prayers, right? We'll toss up a few prayers and be like, hey, I got this, I got this hope in God going. And maybe even at times we'll, we'll throw church attendance in there. After all, what better way to show God we're serious than sitting through an entire hour of singing and talking? What a sacrifice that is. But then, we do all that, and God doesn't do what we want Him to do. And many people are right back to thinking about how stupid they were to believe that God would throw them a bone if they just do what He wanted. That's not hope. That's not compelling. That's not a reason to live. See, they don't actually believe that He rewards those who seek Him. Because they can't understand something vital about that reward. The reward to seeking God is God. The reward to seeking God is a deeper relationship with God. And if your hope in God is so that you can get something other than God, you don't actually have hope in God. They wished life would be better for them, but they can't even see what they're missing. But let's be honest, isn't that what we do? Like if I believe in God and I trust in Christ, then life gets better for me. And when life doesn't get better for me, then maybe God doesn't even exist at all. But what you've done is you've said, I only want God as long as it makes my life better, but you don't understand that your life only gets better if you know God really know him. You trust him implicitly. See, wishes will always disappoint us, but hope never does. Real hope never does. 
Because this hope is dependent on God's ability. Al Mohler says this, While works of external righteousness and general morality may commend us before men, these things are not sufficient to commend us before God. Humanitarianism, religiosity, morality, and following the most scrupulous personal ethical codes cannot bring us God's approval on the day of judgment. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's no divine commendation for anyone who walks uprightly by the world's standards without placing faith in Jesus Christ. You see what it is there? It's not about what you do for God. It's about hope in God himself, which we know is through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. The quality of hope that's based on knowing God is one that requires us to respond, but not just one time. Right? This is Another thing, another sort of misconception is we think that hope in God is at one point in time in our lives we pray this prayer. Somebody says, hey, do you want to be saved? Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Yes. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Answer that question. If you walked up to, it's why for years you see these groups of kids and somebody's giving like a gospel presentation to kids and everybody's like, hey, do you guys want to go to hell or heaven? What kid is going to be like, hell, yeah, yeah, right? No, no kid is going to do that, right? Everybody wants to go to heaven when they die. And so we're presented with this, if, if you'll just pray this prayer, then you're saved, and you don't have to do anything for the rest of your life. What a damnable doctrine that is. And it's why I've encountered people for years who are like, I prayed this prayer when I was young, but 40 years, no, no church attendance, no scripture reading, no prayer, and that they somehow think that God is going to reward them when they stand before him at the end of their lives. That is not hope, and that is not faith. And if you're believing that repeating a phrase after somebody says it is what saves you, you need to get into the Word. That's not hope. It's not hope. It's not a one-time ascent to intellectual information. What we see in Hebrews chapter 11 is it's a journey where you are like, I am all in because the only thing that could satisfy my every desire is God. So I will follow him as long as it takes to know him. It's a response that continues through the duration of our earthly lives. It's a journey that never stops. It's fueled by a hope that we will ultimately enjoy what God has promised to his people. That's what fueled these men and women, that God was going to keep his promise. Whatever promise he gave them. Hey, Abraham, get up and go. Okay, here's the things I'm going to do for you. Okay, did Abraham see any of those things happen? No, but he went. Why? Because of relationship with God, because his hope was that God would do what he said he was going to do. True hope isn't about what I can be or what I can do. It's not dependent on me. It's about who Christ is and what he has done. Look at verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Right? When you put your hope, true hope, in God, you're not looking back. Right? You're not constantly being like, oh, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't have done this, Right? Maybe, maybe I made the wrong decision here. These people, what's clear about these people in chapter 11 is that they knew that they didn't belong here. 
If they were, if they were not seeking a homeland, they would have just went back to where they came from. And that's why Lot's wife looks back, right? She wasn't thinking how great things are going to be when they follow God. She was just thinking of what she was leaving behind. That's not hope. That's hope. But it's a constant following of God. It's a journey with Him, which is, we see the second point here that the author of Hebrews is making in this list, is that hope always looks forward. Hope always looks forward. We know the difference between hoping and wishing by our response when things get hard, right? We'll give ourselves the option to bail out if things aren't going as planned. But this was never an option for people whom God has called. Hope doesn't like hedge your bets with plan B, right? Well, I'll follow God, but plan B is I'm going to set, set a nice life up for myself just in case God doesn't come through. But can I present to you that just in case God doesn't come through is not actually faith? But how many times do we encourage somebody else to do that? Hey, you should have a plan B. For what? For in case God drops the ball on this one? Maybe we should be careful. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, like, we should mentally plan. There is something wrong with saying, like, well, what if God doesn't do, doesn't do what? Doesn't do what you want him to do? He's probably not going to do what you want him to do. He's probably going to do something better for you than what you want him to do. It's just hard for us to understand. We know the difference between hope and wish by our response when things get hard. These people were seeking a homeland, which means they have no home here. Right? They felt not at home. You, don't, you only, only go back if you don't actually believe there's anything worth leaving for. When Jesus was eliminating followers through some of his hard teaching, which he did, like if you look at Jesus on a leadership scale, not good. Not good. Jesus was not like on like on the John Maxwell scale of leadership, Jesus was really bad because he would constantly turn to his followers and be like, hey, here's something really hard and impossible. Like, hey, hey, Jesus, I need to bury my dad. Well, let the de dead bury their dead. Like, what? That's callous. And then Jesus out of nowhere is like, hey, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you guys can't follow me. And I think most of us would be like, this dude's weird. So I'm going to go over here. And then Jesus turns to his closest followers and says, you would think Jesus would be like, hey guys, don't leave me, Tr trust me. Jesus turns to his closest followers like, what about you guys too? You want to leave? Because now's the time. <laughs> and Peter, I think incredulously, is like, where are we going to go? Like, I had a job, but I don't have a job anymore because you, <laughs> right? I had stuff, but I don't have stuff anymore because you, Peter said, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They were absolutely convinced there was no going back. At this point, they're all in. Why? Because they had relationship with him. They didn't fully know all of who he was, but they knew enough to trust him. See, some people are going to spend most of 2021 either continually lamenting 2020 or trying to, their best to focus on making this the best year ever right? You're pumping yourself up, and you're like, oh, 2021 is going to be so much better than 2020. That's not going to work, because you can't control it. That's what I thought at 2020. I'm like, 2020 is going to be cool. Turns out, it was not very cool, right? Didn't go the way I wanted it to. 
And both of these things are going to end in disappointment, especially for the Christian. Right? We see that in the life of, of Abraham. Look at verse 17. Abraham went forward with God's command to sacrifice his son, not out of some blind idea that sacrificing his child was good, or even that God maybe wasn't serious about it. There's no part of Abraham in Scripture where we get him being like, God's not really serious. I can do this because God just planned. No, Abraham was absolutely convinced that God wanted him to kill his son. And you might be shocked and horrified by that, but Abraham was convinced. This is what I'm supposed to do. I don't know why I'm supposed to do that. I'm sure it wasn't happy for him, because this was the child of the promise. But Abraham goes, he takes his son, gets him up early in the morning, say, it's time to go. This is what God wants us to do. Abraham went forward with God's command to sacrifice his son because of this. Look at verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham went forward with God's command to sacrifice his son because he was convinced that if he was requiring it, God was able to raise him from the dead. That's hope. He didn't think that God wasn't serious. He knew that if God was serious, though, that it was no big deal because this was the God that could bring him back to life. That is hope. That is faith. Not that there's a plan B, but that even if God requires it, he's going to bring him back from the dead because God made a promise. That is hope. Not hesitating even though it looks like it ends in death. Moving forward because we believe that this God we serve calls all of his people to live as though he is actually able to raise his people from the dead. Last time I checked, that's exactly what he does. Is it not? In this hope? And in this, own, this very story, it's a picture of how God took his own son to that sacrificial place where we should have stood. Jesus was that lamb that was provided for God's people. So how do we know that we can trust God's promises and plan right now? Because God raised his own son from the dead. How can I trust God? If in 2020 you're like, how can I trust God? Because Jesus is alive. That's how you know you can trust God. That's how you know your hope in God is not misplaced. Because that God raised his son from the dead. That's a pretty good trick. And really, what more proof do we need? What more proof do you need to trust God? To know that he keeps his promises. There's something prepared for us that we can't have here. There's something prepared for us that only death ushers us into. I know it sounds kind of morbid, but that's reality. Hope always looks forward because we know that what we are ultimately looking for, we will not find here. You won't find it here. If you think you can find it here, you will always look back. I should have done this. I should have done this. I should have done this. This is what I wish my life looked like. That is not hope. Hope is always, I'm convinced that what I'm really looking for, I will never find in this place. I'm waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. You know, we lament 
how our young people have been co-opted by culture, how they're leaving the church, how social media and technology have stolen them. But the real problem, the real problem is the problem that we don't want to admit, is that we, many times, Christians, have not been a hopeful people. We have not taken seriously blessing our children with the desire to continue following Jesus or pointed them to the reality that nothing here can satisfy the longing that they have for eternity. Look at verses 17 through 26 with me. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his own son. Now, this is entrusting your children to God. I've heard some people say, like, how crazy do you think Isaac, you know, thought his dad was? Man, I think that's a tremendous example of, like, if you see your dad, like, willing to do whatever it takes to follow God, you've got to be thinking, I think this God is real, or my dad is completely crazy, right? And especially when you see the lamb provided. I mean, that's not something that drove Isaac away from God. That's something that drew him closer into relationship. The example of his father's hope in God. How do we know that? Well, look what Isaac did. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. 17 through 26, these are examples of hopeful parenting. Entrusting them to God as Abraham did. Blessing them as Isaac did. Modeling worship in front of them as Jacob did. The last thing that Jacob did as he was dying by faith, verse 21, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. The last thing, the way that Jacob went out of this world was worshiping over these kids. I hope that the way I exit this earth is similar to that in worship and blessing subsequent generations. In Joseph, we get this by faith. Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He was thinking strategically about the next generation. Look at Moses' parents in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. What do, what do we see there? Parents who were fearless in the face of a government that would devote their children to death. That is hope. No, they're not going to have our kids. Man. So how are we going to respond? Adults, this is for us right now. How are we going to respond? What are we going to give to our young people? Has, has 2020 not shown us that we have absolutely no control and that nothing we build here on earth can't be torn down in a matter of months? What lives of hope and pursuit of the unseen promises of God are we living with? Are our lives compelling examples of knowing God to the point of considering all other things worthless by comparison? Or do we have the type of hope displayed by Moses? Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Do we have that hope? What would it look like for us as believers to really 
have such a secure hope that we would consider all the treasures of the world pale in comparison with the priceless gain of knowing Christ our Lord. And that's compelling. That's compelling. Do we, as Moses did in verse 27, endure because we see him who is invisible? Right? We don't know how God is going to fulfill what he said he will do. And actually, if God told you how he was going to fulfill what he says he's going to do in your life, you would probably try to convince him there's a much more reasonable way to accomplish his purposes. If God would have started, if God would have like met us here at the church and said, I'm going to every congregation, I'm just prepping you guys for 2020, okay? The beginning of 2020, God says, here's what's going to happen. Big pandemic, lots of social unrest, weird political stuff's going to happen. Um, we would be like, okay, but here's the thing. There's a better way to do this, God. There's a much better way to do this. You don't have to do all this. If you just tell us, here's what, we, here's what you want from us, we'll just be better, right? And then we can do this the, the, the clean way, right? You, you would try to argue God out of like his plan because you don't like it, right? Even if we knew how he was going to fulfill. And, and the same thing. We don't know how God's going to fulfill his promises because we would try to talk him out of it because his ways are not our ways. Do you know that 2020, as believers, 2020 is exactly what we need for sanctification. Nothing happened in 2020 that is not what God wanted. Nothing. I know how that sounds, but I also know what Scripture says. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul says that the things we see are actually the things that don't last but the things that we can't see are forever, are eternal. And so we, we look at life and we look at the world through a lens of like, wait, well, if this stuff is not happening for me right now, that's got to mean I'm, I'm, I'm on some sort of wrong path. Something's weird. Like God's not doing his job or I'm not doing enough for God. But that's not how this works, right? Because we look towards the things that are not seen. Because those are the things that are eternal. Faith or hope always results in us moving forward because we believe that even death can't stop God's promises from being fulfilled. Do you believe that? Not even death. In fact, in fact, death is most often the way in which God's promises are fulfilled. Let's also remember that we don't move forward as lone rangers because the other thing we do with hope is we make it just about, it's just about me, right? My hope. And we get all sort of like, we internalize this, and so we we self-help it to death, right? This is going to be my year. We make it about us. But we don't move forward as lone rangers or disconnected individuals seeking our own good and our own glory. Brings us to the third point. Hope is always about God's family. It's not just about individuals. Like, these individuals in Hebrews chapter 11, like, we could just sort of section them off and parse them out and think that it's just about that person and do a case study on their life. But all of them knew that it wasn't just about them. I mean, the promises that God made to Abraham weren't about Abraham. They're about all nations being blessed through what God wanted to do through Abraham. To this point, we still seem to think that the hope we're talking about is for us individually, and in a certain sense, it is. But the point 
being made by the author of Hebrews is to show the testimony of what binds together all of the people of God for all time. This is the reasoning for the list of examples of faith, not for us to try to reproduce or even emulate. I mean, a lot of these names had some pretty messy situations attached to them. I mean, Abraham alone, he's like, no, it's not my wife, it's my sister. What? Like twice. I'm afraid they're going to take her from me, so I'll just call her my sister. So what do they do? They take her from me. And then I have to tell them, oh, sorry, awkward situation. It's not really my sister, it's my wife. That's pretty messed up, right? You don't, you don't want to be like all these people. Noah, as soon as God saves him, saves his family, it's the first thing he do, does when he gets off the boat. Gets naked and drunk. I mean, you don't want that either, right, on your resume. You want to avoid that. The God of hope is the God who takes misfits, screw-ups, and the throwaway people of this world, and he gives them purpose and meaning. He draws them to himself and gives them a compelling calling to live for something other than themselves. You know, there's, Jesus makes a statement one time that it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. And the reason he does that is because hope is always more appealing to people who have no hope. I mean, if you think you've got this life tackled, what do you really need God for? Your job's tight. You make a lot of money. Home life is pretty good. Love life is pretty good. Like on the surface level, you don't need God. You've handled it well. But look at the people who God uses. I want you to pay particular attention to verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Look at Rahab, the prostitute who is included in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. You want to talk about hope? Come on, you want to talk about hope? This non-Israelite, this pagan prostitute, brothel keeper, was convinced that the God of Israel would keep his promise to her and save her and her family? This is the God that changed a whole nation because of the willingness of a prostitute to believe that the God of Israel was kind enough to save her whole family in spite of what she had done and not even being an Israelite. Her son, Boaz, showed kindness to Ruth, a Moabitess, who was King David's great-grandmother. God didn't use Rahab didn't rescue Rahab just so Rahab could have a better life. God rescued Rahab and stuck her right in the lineage of our Savior. He used her hope, her faith in his mercy to be in the lineage of the humanity of the Savior of the world. God changes people. I mean, if this morning you think you are so messed up and your, your history is so spotted, God couldn't possibly use you. May I present to you the prostitute? Is that the, that's the most hopeful thing I've heard all week. The point is, 
for us to see that our hope can't be connected to just our lives in our time. It's not about getting what we want here and now. And let's be honest, the result of our hope is only realized through our deaths. You can't have the full realization of your hope in Christ in this life. Let me say that again. You can't have the full realization of your hope in Christ in this earthly life. Paul says this, if we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we of all people are the most miserable. If your hope in Jesus is that your life here will be better, you're the most miserable person in the room. And I'll I'll show you why here in a minute. Justin Martyr instilled hope in his congregation before their execution by reminding them, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. That's the nature of hope. What we get in the latter part of Hebrews 11 is not at face value very inspiring. Because our stories of the inspiration of hope are these monumental cinematic-like representations of somebody having a victory here. It's why typically, and please hear my heart when I say this, I'm not a big fan of Christian movies. Because a lot of them are these great stories of like triumph here, and I'm like, please. My uncle died a quadriplegic in a VA hospital in Arizona, right? Like, the triumph of his life was that he always talked about Jesus till the end of his life, right? That's one of the examples I use. It doesn't mean you're going to win the big game. Young people, listen. Philippians 4.13 is not about you winning the big game. It's not what we get in Hebrews chapter 11. Maybe it's overcoming a situation you thought was impossible, right? Sickness, weakness, financial instability. But maybe it's even hoping that the world will become a better place when we get rulers and politicians who are better and able to make our country or the world a better place. Listen to me. Hear this. Well, the hope of the world has never, ever, 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 ever been in the state It doesn't matter who you put in there. The government is on the shoulders of the Messiah, even though people don't recognize that. You know who's in charge of everything? Jesus. We don't put our hope there. Is this what our hope amounts to? Right? What do we get when we sign up for this type of hope in Christ? What do we get? What's our reward for such things? Greatness, achievement, well, let's read verses 32 through 38. Starts, starts well, ends really poorly. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Sounds cool so far. Were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. We're like, yeah, that's the stuff that I want to see happen. And then he just smoothly goes into, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's a good one. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is not a very compelling mission statement. It starts well, like, hey, who wants to conquer kingdoms? I do. Who wants to get sawn in half? Not me. The hope that gets injected after looking at this list, right, doesn't come from where we would imagine. You wouldn't sign up for that, right? 
Who wants to live a hopeful life? I do. All right, you might get sawn in two. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. On top of all that, verses 13 and 39 say pretty much the same thing. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So hold on. So I'm supposed to sign up for God's promises, and then I get sawn in half, but I don't actually get the promise that God was telling me I was going to get? I don't like this deal. It seems, like, it seems like God pulled a fast one on me. I guess that depends on how you look at it, right? If following God for you means wish fulfillment of all the wonderful things that the world treasures just with a Jesus flair, then yeah, I guess that's pretty disappointing. Like if you want what, what the world has to offer, but you just want to add Jesus to it, then yes, being sawn in two for a promise that you never receive would be very disappointing. If, however, you have faith to see all these examples of hope we're looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises, then you realize that this wonderful hope we are called into in Christ isn't just about us. What's one of the main points of Hebrews chapter 11? You are not as big a deal as you would hope that you would be. Everybody wants to be a celebrity, especially now. Everybody wants to be an influencer. But do you want what it actually takes to be an influencer of hope in God's standard? These examples were looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. The culmination of their hope was ultimately Christ, saving his people from their sins. Only the blood of Jesus could fulfill the promises that God made to these saints. Only the blood of Jesus. See, they didn't know that then. Their hope was never fully seen because they died before they could see it. But they were joined by their trust that God was doing something they would ultimately be able to behold in glory, and that is where we join them. We're, we're in a wonderful time right now because we're able to see the fulfillment of God's promises to save his people from their sins, but we're not yet to the point where we can see how God is going to fulfill the promises to make all things new. We're not there yet. So we're still in that tension. Not all Christians are called to die, but all Christians are called to live in a way that death won't keep them from being faithful. And we're so averse to suffering that we've presented to younger generations a hope in making things better here, which results in the unspoken belief that there's no way anything outside of what we could make here could be better. That's arrogant. Donald Guthrie says this about this passage. He implies that all the sufferings of God's people are in some way linked with sufferings on behalf of the Messiah, the perfect representative of God. All that Moses suffered was in the cause of God's plan of salvation for his people, culminating in the abuse which was heaped on Christ himself, of which the writer is acutely conscious throughout this epistle. You see this? Our unseen hope isn't just about us. It's what joins all true believers in all times based on the promises of God and our trust in His ability to keep these promises. God's people are linked throughout history for something much greater than themselves. And this isn't even mentioning all the people who were just quietly faithful quietly faithful. And that matters. It matters in the lives of children. It matters in the lives of neighbors. It matters in the lives of community to, 
to see faithful believers unshaken when the world collapses because their hope isn't in this life. Do you know what Cedar Rapids needs? Do you know what Lynn County needs? Do you know what Iowa needs? It doesn't need some massive program where we're going to do great things for God. It needs believers to actually have hope enough in Christ to live quiet, faithful lives where you testify that when 2020 goes haywire, you are still convinced that in the middle of that, God is going to fulfill all his promises in Christ. That's what the world needs. It doesn't need some sort of big government movement where Big Brother takes care of everything and we just let him do it. It needs the people of God to rise up and actually act like our hope is not here. Come on. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40 caps it off. Since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Throughout all time, the salvation of God's people has always been secured in the finished work of Christ. Always. We know that now. And this is a great time to be alive as God's people. We have seen the culmination of God's work in history to save his people from their sins. And we're united with them. Their faith was seen even when they had no clue what was coming. But we have seen. We know how this ends, amen? We know, we know how this ends. We know that Christ has come and that all God's promises find their fulfillment in him and we have an even greater confidence because we have proof that God keeps his promises. Do you know how you know God keeps his promises? Because Jesus is alive. That's how we know. An unseen hope is founded on the belief that God will accomplish everything. He's promised, and a conviction that we won't ultimately find it here. And we're united with other believers in this hope, and we are convinced that even if it costs us our comfort or life, there is no better way to live than with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. And this morning, if you're sitting in here or if you're sitting at home and you have struggled to find hope, Maybe it's because you've never really trusted that God fulfills his promises. And the number one way that you do that is you, you acknowledge that Jesus is the only one who can save you from your sins. You trust in what God has done through Christ and you bow the knee today, this moment, in your living room, in this room, you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and you say, I believe you, God. You're able to do all that you said you're gonna do. It might be hard to see it now, but God is still working. Jesus is still coming. Everything we do here for God's kingdom actually matters. And our hope is only hope if we aren't able to see exactly how it's going to work. But what an amazing thing it's going to be to behold how God was able to accomplish everything he said he would. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this unseen hope that we have in Christ, that you are not only the promise maker, you are the promise keeper. Father, you are the only one who is actually able to say, this is what's going to happen, and this is exactly what I'm going to do. We can't say that. So, Father, help us to trust you, your goodness, your wisdom, your ability Lord, help us to be absolutely convinced that what we ultimately will find fulfillment in can't be had here, but we get just a taste of it. And Lord, we encourage one another and live faithful lives, 
pointing one another to Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. Lord, we love you. We celebrate that our victory has been sealed in Christ and his work on the cross. And we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.